Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here. A lot to talk to you about today. I'm excited to get into all of the latest with you. If you've got some thoughts you want to share... 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Also, if you are in the Facebook or tweeting kind of mood, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or on Twitter, Buck Sexton. Let's get some more Team Buck Twitter going on during the show. I can live, I can. I have it out here on the screen. I can respond to you in real time, those of you listening. You're like, Buck, make that funny sound again. You know, I can do that. So there you go on Twitter. But we've we got a lot to... Uh, a lot to dive into here. More information. Look, the biggest story in the country right now is is this memo and the Mueller probe and what's going to happen with that. And that's because there is a presidency at risk. But before I get into the details of what we know as of today with this memo and surveillance and all of that, let me say that the approval rating today I'm seeing is... Forty-five percent, which is pretty good for a president at this stage. Uh, he's in Davos right now. He's in Switzerland. It's going to be like Switzerland, yeah. But that sounds like I don't know if that's more German or Swedish, but probably German. Well, the Swiss speak German too. Some of them. What is it? German, Italian, and French, right? But he's in Davos and he's talking about America and trying to promote the interests of American businesses and. Uh, you even got Democrat Jamie Dimon, who's saying the following. We've had 2% growth, which is kind of below norm. For eight. It's long, but it's half of a normal recovery. We've had 16%. It should have been like 32. And the reason for that is uncompetitive taxes, excess regulation, lack of infrastructure building, our inner city school education doesn't work. As a whole, and, and that's why we're growing slower. I think it's possibly going to hit 4% sometime this year. I think the people just, they, they always look at the past and they think that somehow it has to repeat. It doesn't. You know, I made a list in my chairman's letter of the things holding us back, and they are extensive. And they didn't have to be that way. It could be a lot better, you see. That's what CEO of one of the most, one of the largest and most storied banks in the, in the world is saying there. It could have been a lot better under Obama, everybody. That's what he's saying. The country doesn't have to have all these regulations. It doesn't have to deal with these ridiculous costs imposed by bureaucrats who want to justify their own existence. Something better is possible. We don't have to say, oh, anemic growth and no wage growth and uh, a a growing gap between uh, labor and capital. All the stuff we've seen under the Obama, under Obama for eight years. It doesn't have to be that way. And I I think this is an important psychological shift. And what's amazing is that you have so many who are so invested in the anti-Trump narrative. 
that you say things to them or they hear things from people like Trump or Jamie Dimon here, who, as I said, is a Democrat. But they get angry. When you now start to say to people, I've had this experience. Wow, isn't it? country's doing really well. Things are going, oh, no, it's terrible. Fascism, Trump, nuclear war. Uh, they've just been programmed. I, act, I want the country to be doing well. I want to be celebrating prosperity. I, I have a different approach to what I show up to do on the radio each night than some other people do on their TV shows or on radio. It's not just, oh, my gosh, everything's everything's going to hell. And No, we have fights. We're in a battle. I get that, right? You understand that we focus on the fights that matter. But I also, I want to come in here with you at some level and celebrate when, when we can on issues where we can. I want to take a moment to kick back and say, look at what Trump is doing that's so good for the country. Look at the promises that are being kept. Look at what is happening. And those of you who have a, you know, have a 401k plan, take a look at how it's been the last 12 months. Take a look at how your, how your business is most likely doing compared to previous years under the Obama administration. You know, get a sense for those of you who are looking for work or looking to switch jobs. The hiring market feeling a little better because it should. I know a lot of people are saying it is. In fact, now it's getting tough for employers to find the best, find the, some of the best people just because it's, you know, the, the supply is tightening, right? You got people getting jobs and these are all really good things. And then we have to transition. And, and wait, before I transition, and Trump himself is saying exactly more or less what I'm talking about here, which is that things can get a lot better. There's been a lot of warmth, a lot of uh, respect for our country, and a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars, is coming into the U.S., and people are very happy with what we've done, not only on the tax bill, but also cutting of regulations, and I think also being a cheerleader for our country. You know, if you're not a cheerleader for your company or for your country, no matter what happens, it's not going to work, and that's what I've been, and that's what my whole group has been. He's right. You know, a lot of the so-called smart set, Trump, he doesn't know about this, he doesn't know about that. You know what? Prosperity follows perception a lot of the time and in a lot of ways. Trump's sense of renewed optimism for the country. He's not going around, look, he's not going around bowing. He's not going around apologizing for America. Not saying that we need to do more to, you know, to, to transfer wealth to the downtrodden of the rest of the world because America is some imperialistic and vulture capital driven society right trump's saying look we want good trade with you guys we want peace and prosperity we want people to be doing well to feel good to be living well and I, all i'm seeing is, is so much of this positive messaging and the effects of look if it were if trump were saying this and things were going things were actually crashing all over the place and we were having problems the economy's doing terribly you know we were getting hit with major terrorist attack or you know, all those I'd be saying well hold on a second we can't separate out the reality from or we have to separate out rather the reality from the rhetoric but here I see a, a very different effect I see a president who's saying look we're making a lot of improvements things are good we've got a long way to go but peace and prosperity working together with with the rest of the world on fair trade deals Ramping up GDP, wage growth, job growth, things just going as well as they can for all of us in this country. Look, I mean, everyone's in charge of their own individual destiny, right? I'm, I'm not delusional 
and don't think that the government is going to make all of us happy, and that's not the government's job. But the government shouldn't be in the business of making us all unhappy or poor either, right? The government shouldn't be holding us back from pursuing our destiny, pursuing our own happiness. In fact, I'm pretty clear there's some stuff about the pursuit of happiness the government's supposed to pay attention to. But you have two Trump presidencies right now. You got the presidency with the the guy who's in Davos talking about trade, companies bringing repatriating, bringing back billions and billions of dollars, hiring and all those things that are happening that affect you, that affect me. You know, I want a better future for hopefully a future generation of little bucks. You know, I want a better future for everyone in this country. And you have to look at that sense of positivity and optimism and then just take this hard turn. I mean, like off the road, down an embankment and into a river and flipped over a couple of times to this lunacy on the left where you got all the different channels, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post. And they're counting down the days till this presidency can end. You know, they, they still think that this is all going to come down to, to Mueller. You know, the Mueller's going to get his guy, Mueller, with his whole squad of Democrat political hit operatives. That's, that's what they're hoping for. It is like we're living in two different countries or, or two different universes, really. Because we, we have different perceptions of what's important, what's happening, what's meaningful. This stuff that they're feeding people on the left all the time about how terrible Trump is. and it's, What they're doing is hurtful. It is hurtful to the economic future of this country. It is hurtful to an agenda that until it fails, I don't want to hear from left about how terrible it is because so far it's working. But they're dishonest. And they're now rooting against the country. It reminds me very much of when I was at the CIA and it was the I was I was there for some of the worst parts of the Iraq war. You know, when when things were looking very bleak, a lot of violence in the country, and we were wondering, you know, what can be done here? We've got to turn this thing around, right? That was I mean, when I mean we, I mean the US national security apparatus, the government, the military, military leadership. And you had this very uncomfortable feeling that there were Democrats, and I could even tell you some anecdotes and stories about it, Democrats in the Congress, who were rooting for failure. They were rooting for failure in a war. One thing to root, one thing to root for failure on a, on a, you know, a a tax change, something that maybe makes a little difference to small business. I mean, maybe you could, you could have just. Rooting for failure during a war, though, is a whole other level. And that was happening. And people can yell at me for saying that. It's all, it, it was happening. Democrats were looking at the violence, the casualties coming from Iraq, and they were thinking, this is political win for us. That's the truth of it. Now here we are in a very different sense with a booming economy, the prospect of, of an even better one. I mean, you have people now that are saying, we shouldn't, there's so much... Uh, ebullience, there's so much optimism and there's so much of a a sense of the possibilities of the future right now that usually you'd say, well, this is when you want to be concerned, this is when you want to pull back, you want to be bearish. We should be prudent. There's still the debt. There are big problems out there. But this future that 
the government is now pushing toward would be so good for so many Americans, and yet we have this this entire effort underway right now with the FBI, the DOJ, and I know it's not the I, I'm not going to keep repeating myself where it's it's not all of them, it's just a few people, but you know what I mean. the The leadership of the federal bureaucracy is part of a deep state effort to undermine this administration. It's just a question of how many of them and what they've been willing to do and what laws they've been willing to break. And we are in a fight now with them to expose the truth so that the people can know the truth and therefore the efforts of these deep staters to subvert, undermine, and destroy the Trump agenda can be stopped. This is what is at stake right now. This is where we are. We've got a president who's out there doing what he should be doing, and you got a media apparatus and, and government figures who are just spiteful, spiteful against everything that we're seeing happening here. I've got more for you on the, the text messages between the FBI agents, the release the memo. De- I mean, the release the memo debate is turning into the most dishonest, nonsensical discussion with all these people that are going on TV that are making it. I want to just pull it all apart. All right, because I understand how this game works and how this is played and how classified information and declassifying works. And here's what I can tell you. I have been not a skeptic, but withholding judgment on the memo up until now because I want to see it before I really, you know, come to a final conclusion about it. But what I am seeing now is that just waiting for the process to play out is unacceptable to the opponents of releasing this memo. They are, they are increasingly desperate. They are increasingly, obviously, to me, trying everything that they can not to push back on the narrative of what may come out of this Nunes memo. That's I expected that but to really use bureaucratic delay. And they're kicking and screaming here, fighting to stop this memo from getting out. Why? If it were a, if it were a nothing burger, if it was a nothing burger, what's the big deal? I want to explore this more with you because I, I, don't, I don't overpromise here on the show because I want us to always be as close to the facts and reality as possible. But I can't ignore what's happening here. These arguments they're putting up against the release of the memo, everybody, this is, it is nonsense. It is garbage. I wish I could use some saltier language right now to explain to you what it is. But let's, let's work through the arguments, look at what we have so far, talk about the text messages, where that stands now. And then later on, uh, we'll get into the uh, update on immigration. We've got to talk about some crazy law in California that's been proposed a tennis star has getting has gotten some heat for his political views. We'll get into that. I mean, we just got a jam-packed show, everybody. Hold on, I'll be right back. Are you are you going to talk to Mueller? I'm looking forward to it, actually. You want to? Do you have a date yeah, Here's a start. Just so you understand, there's been no collusion whatsoever. There's no obstruction whatsoever. And I'm looking forward to it. I do worry when I look at all of the things that you people don't report about with what's happening. If you take a look at, you know, the five months worth of missing texts, that's a lot of missing texts. And as I said yesterday, that's prime time. So you do sort of look at that and say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Uh, You do look at certain texts where they talk about insurance policies or insurance. 
where they say the kinds of things they're saying. You've got to be concerned. But I would love to do that, and I'd like to do it as soon as possible. Well, well, Good luck, everybody. Do you have a date General, set? Come on. So here's the story. Do you have a date set, Mr. I, I don't know. No, I think, guess they're talking about two or three weeks, but I would love to do it. Would you do in person. You know, again, it's, I have to say, subject to my lawyers and all of that, but I would love would to do it. Would you do it under oath, Mr. President? You mean like Hillary did it under Who said that? Oh. I said that. Oh. Would you do it under oath? Uh, oh, you said it. You did say it. You say a lot. Did Hillary do it under oath? I think you have an idea. Don't you have an idea? Wait, 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 wait. Do you not have an idea? Do you really not have an idea? I'll give you an idea. She didn't do it under oath. But I would do it under oath. Listen, but I would do it. And you know she didn't do it under oath, right? If you didn't do it, if you didn't know about it. He's amazing. Oh, no, did we, was that the end? I didn't mean, oh, okay. He's amazing, dude. That was great. Look, you know, what's the problem with the president Speaking his mind, who said that politicians had to be these little automatons? I just want to sit here and talk about how I will bring the country together and a bright future for, you know, that's crap. He's got the media coming after him. They're trying to box him in on some, on, this whole thing is nonsense. A giant waste of time. I, I wonder what happens at CNN. What will their programming be when... They no longer have a Russia collusion narrative to run with. I, I just wonder what the switch will be. They'll, oh, that's right. They'll they'll start lying about cops again and saying that cops are murderers who are killing people for no reason. That's that'll probably be the main main subject matter over there. Because I remember that was just a couple of years ago. Uh, I remember some spirited exchanges I had on air with some of their pundits. They're saying, well, you know, we're not saying that all cops are bad. No, that's actually really what you're, you're imputing all, all officers. But that's a discussion for another time. Look, Trump's not not taking it uh, lying down here, and he shouldn't. But I I worry about where this goes if he does sit down with this special prosecutor. Think about this. Think about the possibilities. As I was saying to you when we started the show, the the benefits of the Trump presidency are becoming more and more apparent to those of us who have open eyes, and. The better it gets, the angrier the left is. Because not only would they have been wrong about this guy, but it would mean they've been wrong about pretty much everything, right? <laughs> they've been wrong about what it would do to the country. They've been wrong about Russia collusion. They've been wrong, wrong, wrong. And look, people like confirmation bias. People like to be told what they think is true is true or what they think is right is right. And that's a big problem for turning around the public opinion on what's happening in the country for about half the country. Right? I said 45% of the country approves of Trump's job performance. Well, I think we know which 45% that is, roughly speaking. Uh, but we do need to talk a little bit about the text and where that, where that is now. Um, here's the, the short answer is that the text messages they say have been recovered. And we will dive into what that means. The bigger issue then is the memo and the case for the release of the memo. And I don't think that we have the luxury of time on this one. I'm starting to, I'm sensing a pattern here among the government folks involved. I'll tell you what's going on here, but you're gonna have to stay through this break. I'll be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 
I just don't think it's confidence inspiring as a general general rule to find out that the guy who was running the FBI for four years is such a huge weirdo and lacks all self-awareness. I mean, Jim Comey is a a bombastic dork, apparently. Uh, he's taken to Twitter. I, and, you know, it's so funny, too. The same thing that we've seen happen with a lot of the so-called journalists who are straight down the middle. I just speak the facts. Most of my job is getting hairspray and reading lines written by other people, but I'm all about journalism. Uh, we see they, because of Twitter now, because of Facebook, social media, we see what they really think, and then they can't hide, right? Then we know. This is the problem that, this, look, this is the problem that CNN's have. They're all, oh, we're just down the middle, right? They got Jim Acosta one minute who will be mocking the president or sharing stories about how the president is Hitler, basically. And then the next minute, like, I'm just a journalist doing my job. Uh, that's happening now with former public officials, too. You know, it used to be you would finish being director of such and such an agency, and you were kind of happy to maybe do consulting or go teach at the university. Now, everybody wants to be a celebrity. Everyone wants to be a star. And this is how you get Clapper over at CNN and, uh, you know, Comey now. Look at Preet Bharara, right? This guy, he really has got nothing, nothing better to do than go on TV and trash Trump over at the anti-Trump networks. I'm sure he's making solid mid-seven-figure territory by working at any law firm that just wants him on the letterhead, right? So what's with, I guess he probably does both. Look, it's hey, it's nice to have been the former U.S. attorney. Point is, though, everybody's letting us know who they are and what they really think. So we don't have to guess anymore. We see it. It's out there for us. And, I mean, Comey uh, <laughs> seems to think he's almost a, a cult figure of, of tremendous significance. He tweets out the weirdest stuff. If you're not on Twitter, you should get on Twitter just so you can understand why I'm making fun of, of James Comey right now. But he shared last night the following. Russia threat should unite us, not divide us. It's not about Republicans or Democrats. They're coming after America, which I hope we all love equally, and they will be back because we remain that shining city on the hill and they don't like it. End quote. And then he wrote, me. So Comey is now that guy who quotes himself on Twitter. He's that guy. Uh, this is not surprising to me. You know, this is the, I think Comey was also the guy who in high school uh, probably you know, ratted on his friend who was going to throw a party when the parents were gone. I think that was also Comey. I'm just playing by the rules. I'm just all about honesty. You know, thanks. Thanks. Now we got to return the keg, Comey. Good job, Comey. Good job. Uh, that's what's going on here. You're seeing who this guy really is. And this whole notion that he doesn't have an axe to grind with Trump. I mean, that that was nonsense the moment he shared what may have been classified information with a person he now claims after the fact was his attorney. Gee, isn't that convenient? In order to slam Trump. In order to slam Trump. That is... The truth of it right now. That's what's going on here. So, okay. The text messages. I said to you that this was not an acceptable excuse, that the text messages can't uh, can't just disappear. And 
that just remember we had the guy, one of our guests, or, or one of our listeners rather, called in. He was basically like a guest, shed some wisdom on the issue, uh, talking about how there's no way that that information could actually be lost the way that they were saying it was. It's just not possible. That wasn't a, a real excuse. Now they're saying, okay, it was thousands of agents, but we found this stuff. Okay. I think I'm inclined to say, well, as long as they have it, all right. Now, you know, maybe it wasn't wasn't cause for alarm, although there's a difference between saying it wasn't or, or we shouldn't be alarmed about it now and we shouldn't have rejected it then. We were right to reject that they lost these text messages from these two people and that that was just the way it was. No, that's not OK. <laughs> so now they're like, OK, you're right. You're right. So we, we found it. We found it. OK, well, I'll accept that for now. But I didn't want to get ahead of where things were by saying, well, you know, it's we're never going to find them. And this is clearly a big conspiracy and everything else. The initial the initial explanation was unacceptable. And I would not have accepted it. Neither would you. Now we're somewhere else. But now we get to the memo. And and I should know they're going to go through more of the text messages. Oh, also the the story on the secret society now is that we have the full context of the text. And they're saying that the whole secret society thing was a joke, basically. And in context, that's certainly a case that they can make. And I told you that that was what they were going to say two days ago. So th- there's there's that. See, I don't like it. It's I in this world of whoever is the you know whoever takes it to eleven on the dial first wins. I I try to stay with what's what's real. I try to keep it. I try to keep it real, as they said in Clueless. So we may now be able to look more closely at what really matters here, which is the memo. Yeah, the the, the Secret Society thing, I'm, I don't think that's... I'm not saying that there wasn't politicization with those agents and that they weren't... All that, I think, is still true. I th- and, and I do think the insurance policy comment, that was not a joke. That's That was weird, and that's a problem. Uh, hey, you even had a... You even had... Tapper over at CNN. Hmm, look what he had to say about this. There is something legitimately to be concerned about in the struck page uh, texts. I mean, it, it does show people who are supposed to be uh, implementing fair and impartial justice, uh, showing r- real bias and, yes. and saying things that are inappropriate. And, yes. And why anybody would try to um, not just focus on the facts is beyond me, given that it is a damaging story mm-hmm. uh, that hurt, that undermines the, the Mueller investigation. Yes. All of that true from Tapper. Tap, Tapper true on that, not false. So there, you, there, we know the text. We'll find out, or we have the text. We'll find out more about them as, uh, as we can. But then you get into the memo. And this is where I started to say, you know what? We, we've got, we got an issue here. We've got a problem. Because this is not the the claims that they've put out there for what's going on with this memo, that the way the Democrats are acting and the way the DOJ and the FBI are acting is concerning. Let me start with this. The notion that this memo is look, it's written by Nunes and it's coming to analytic conclusions. And I'm talking about a memo I haven't seen. No one's seen it yet that can talk about it. It's one of those Catch-22 is one of those situations, right? If you've seen it, you're not allowed to talk about it. If you're talking about it, it's because you haven't been able to see it. 
But here's why I think it's probably even worse than I would have guessed a couple of days ago. The DOJ FBI are pushing to slow this thing down. And they will get the opportunity. I mean, Congress has, via statute, the right to declassify information. There is a process for that. The Republicans on the House committee involved here would like to do that. On the House Intelligence Committee, they would like to declassify this information. How there can be any objection to this is very strange to me. It's, it's, it's not the FBI's information. It's not the DOJ's information. That's not how it works. There are actually two authorities for the classification of information. The executive branch, i.e. the president, its commander-in-chief, and the Congress via statute. That's it. That's it. DOJ, I mean, DOJ can classify things with the authority of the executive branch behind them, but, but they don't, they're not the final arbiters. This is the point I'm making. It's not, you, you can't have a situation where the attorney general, for example, would say, and this is not happening, but I'm just trying to illustrate the point, Oh no, this is too this is too important. People can't know this. And the president says, "No, actually this needs to be declassified." And the Congress says, "No, actually this needs to be declassified," which means publicly shared. The 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 one agency does not get to say, "Nah, sorry. We're not going to play. We're going to hide the ball." Nope. There is no basis for that legally or ethically. But I get the sense that there's a bit of panic running through DOJ and FBI on this memo. And that's why they're trying to throw up all these different roadblocks. They want to see it. They're all upset about it. There was this uh, memorandum that was sent down to the Congress and, you know, the senators want to see it. And what you see here is there, there's only two. There's really only two options for why people would be upset that they have not read the. This is about the FISA abuse, right? This is the FISA abuse memo. Only two reasons here I can think of why anybody would have a problem. One is, and this is what obviously is the case with a lot of the Democrats, they want to have as much of a of an opportunity as possible to refute and rebut the information because it's going to damage it's going to damage the storyline that Trump and Russia colluded and that there's no problem at the DOJ and FBI. And so the Democrats want now You'd think that that would mean Democrats would all be lining up to read this thing. Turns out they're staying away and just hoping to prevent its release, which, hmm, that seems like a weird issue, doesn't it? But then you have the other side of it as well, and this is where I have even greater concerns, and that's based on the following. If this is about protecting the reputation and integrity of the DOJ, of the Department of Justice, we got a big problem. Because we need to know what really happened here. There is a presidency at stake. I think not enough people put it in that, in that tone or in that context, but that is what is happening here. There is a presidency at stake. And when we look at what that would mean going forward and what the risks are in the disclosure of information, right, the disclosure of Whatever is in this memo, uh, I'm sorry. The, the oh, we've got to protect national security. What could be more important to national security right now than knowing whether or not the president was spied on by the opposition party using the intelligence apparatus 
of the party in power, I would note at the time, to try and throw the results of an election. What, what could be a bigger national security concern than that? And if it's fake, if it's not true, if it's wrong, if, if this is all smoke and mirrors, the Democrats should want the information to be public. They should want it to be released. If it's a nothing burger, the Democrats will have a field day with it. So what's with all the trepidation? What I'm telling you is that this looks like some people are worried. They think they're going to get burned on this. And if that's the case, well, then we darn sure better see what this memo is. And it needs to happen soon. I have, I have this suspicion that there is at least a hope in the Department of Justice and the and the FBI and the Democrats in Congress, that they can stall this thing, maybe even stall it all the way to the midterms. Just stall, stall, stall. And then if Democrats are in charge, then it'll never come out. You know, then, then it'll just be an issue of partisanship preventing the disclosure of information, and we'll be told to move on by the media, and you know that's how they play the game. Look, this is what they did with Benghazi, everybody. They played the slow roll on that as much as they could. And it was unfortunately effective in blunting the outrage that many of us felt we finally got the full facts of what happened there. Or I shouldn't say the full facts, but more of the facts. Because it took such a long time and so much effort, and it was so piecemeal as well. So the bureaucratic slow roll is something we also have to be very aware of here. I want to see this memo. We all have a right to see what's what's in it because we have a right to know the truth and the Democrats are trying to prevent this. We think about it. I thought they were all about transparency. We know that's a joke, right? But they'll still say it sometimes. This would be a very big deal. I, I know that that's not news to any of you, but this would be a very big problem for the FBI, for the DOJ and for the Democrat party. If this memo says what we are being lead, uh, led to believe it says, And I think now I'm inclined to believe it does. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We've got uh, lines lit. Let's get to it. Bubs in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Bubs, you're talking to Buck. Hey, how you doing, Buck? Hey, I'd like to thank you for your service for me for and the service you're doing now. Thank you, sir. Uh, what we need to do, you pretty well touched base on it. We need to change the narrative of what's going on with the DOJ and the FBI. This was a political coup to overturn the electoral vote or to influence the elector- the presidency that you just talked about. Until the narrative changes that it was a political coup because if Hillary would have won, we would have never heard about any of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And what needs to happen, what needs to happen to change it, regardless on who's in power, what political power, independence or a third party, this should never happen in the United States of America. I completely and, agree with you, Bubs. And, and, and to, at the point about how it, it never would have gotten out there well, is exactly very important because like they assumed Hillary was going to win. This is the one way to change it. How come when you're in the military, you get a dishonorable discharge, you lose your pension, lose your health insurance? How come these senators... And people who do misconduct and are, are discharged from their services, how come we can't take away their pension and their health insurance? And that might keep these people on the straight and narrow. You know, it's an interesting question. So few people have ever been impeached and removed from office 
from the Congress. I don't even know what the because they do get it. You know, if you sure what the FBI and the DOJ. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. well, absolutely. There, well, yeah, you can lose it there. I, I, I know of Kate. I knew of somebody the NYPD who lost his pension like three years before would have kicked in. So it can happen for misconduct. Yep, and that's what might keep these people from going to the to the to the dark side. Bubs, I hear you, man. Accountability is a very important part of this whole process, and we got to enforce it. we got to stay on the truth here. So we'll keep doing it. Thanks for calling in, my friend. Shields high. Charlie, Ocean City, Maryland. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Buck. Glad to talk to you tonight. You too. I just wanted to put a little uh, uh, positive spin on this tax deal. Uh, I just got my—I got a little part-time job. I just got my paycheck today, and it increased. And it wasn't due to a pay raise. It was due to the taxes. Now, I'm just a little guy, had a little part-time job, but my pay got increased because of the tax cut. So, Mr. Trump, he is working overtime. Yeah. And, you know, it it matters, doesn't it, Charlie? Despite what... Despite what Debbie Wasserman Schultz says about how $1,000 doesn't get you anywhere, actually a lot of people could really use an extra $1,000 in the bank. I would, I would take that in a minute. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> Charlie, I'm there with you. I could use, I could use a, a cool G in the bank for sure. Thank you very much for calling in, my friend. Shields high, and uh, good to have you on. So uh, we got to hit immigration hard in the next hour because we've got a whole bunch of reports coming in on what the deal for DACA is supposed to be Trump is the great negotiator right the deal maker that was what we were promised when we voted for him we are going to have to look at the terms of the deal as they're being reported right now now look nothing is done yet nothing set in stone but I think some of you may be a little surprised at what President Trump is offering up to the other side on DACA and what he's getting in return so we will work through those parts of this deal and talk about the implications of for the country because here's a the short version is amnesty for daca is a big deal he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth the buck never stops Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We have some more information on the proposed DACA deal. And here are some of the broad strokes as they have been reported by various outlets. Uh, Trump would be okay with amnesty for up to $1.8 million so-called dreamers, in exchange for $25 billion of border security funds, including funding for the wall and changes to chain migration uh, in statute right now and some other shifts to the legal immigration system, uh, including, the, I believe, the elimination of the Visa lottery system is still part of it. So that's what we're hearing. 1.8 million dreamers get amnesty, and Trump has mentioned that he would like there to be a pathway to citizenship for those dreamers. 
Now, is this a an opening bid? Is this the beginning of negotiation? Or is this, in fact, what we're going to be looking at uh, with a deal with the Democrats? Now, I think it's possible. And I don't know. And people that are very close to the president day in and day out will say that he changes what he changes his tune a bit on immigration, depending on who he's talking to. Now, that could be a tactic. He could just be polite or maybe he's still finding the sweet spot for where these negotiations should be. But I am looking at this and I'm thinking that, okay, one point eight million people get amnesty. We have funding for the border, funding for a wall, and the wall will be mostly a wall, but also some areas there's a river or whatever. There won't be an actual physical wall, but there'll be security, physical security in place to prevent illegal crossings. Is this the best that we could hope for? I I actually want to, at some level, uh, put this out there for you, crowdsource this one a little bit. I'm wondering if Trump got this. And we're making an assumption here. The assumption is that this is, in fact, the deal that he wants and that this is the deal that he will get. Would you be happy with that? Because the other option, as far as I see it, and I could be missing something here, but the other option would be that the president says, uh, we have the House, we have the Senate, I'm the president. I ran on a law and order anti-illegal immigration platform. I've been promising my constituents that, yes, there would be a wall, but also that there would be a stop to illegal immigration and there would be deportations, too. Why not just do all the changes that he wants to do without the concession for dreamers? Do we think that what we've learned from this last shutdown, I'm, I'm trying to work through this as we go, because this is a this is going to be a very complex series of negotiations and back and forth, I think, between Trump and the Democrats here. But do we think that there will be. That this is this is the best possible deal or not? Do we think that this is the best thing that you could get or could Trump just say, I've got a better idea. Uh, We're just going to do all the things that I want to do because the Republican Party is in charge of the government right now. And if the Democrats are going to filibuster and shut things down, uh, that's on them. But we, we are not going to cave on this. Would that be, you think, would you think that is a more uh, intelligent way to go about this? A better way to go about this? I don't know. I'm, I, I have to think about the Reagan 86 amnesty and what happened there. And it, it, was, it was a debacle, everyone. Among the biggest disappointments of the Reagan era, I think, on a policy level, uh, was that. Was what happened with the amnesty and... You had people who were still being amnestied long after the law passed. I think until a few years ago, even, there were still people that were part, considered to be part of that amnesty in one way or another. They fought their way through the courts and, and all the rest of it. So um, that's that's what I want. I'm wondering what you think about this. I see this as possibly going the wrong way and maybe even shattering the Trump coalition a little bit. Uh, there, a lot of folks are going to say, hold on a second, we've, we've been through this with the amnesty and we, we were told no amnesty. And now Stephen Miller, 
This is the report out today. Stephen Miller, who's the most hawkish of all of Trump's policy advisors on immigration. I think he's like 34 or something. He's close to my age. And and he is the guy who will stand up and say, actually, the, the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty is not policy. It's not law. It doesn't mean anything, right? He's the one that will actually tell people that. He has been out saying, been in front of, the media saying that this is the offer right now, or this is what Trump is is trying to push for. 1.8 million people amnesty and a pathway to citizenship. Uh, that's not going to be the total number. It'll be bigger than that. That I'm almost certain of. And I just wonder why, with all the things going on right now, why let the Democrats dictate the agenda here? What's the point of that? They are, in a sense, getting a victory if we feel some urgency to handle the DACA issue in advance of the next possible government shutdown. Let them shut down the government. Let the Democrats shut down the government over illegal aliens and see what happens. You know, if there's some big outcry across the country and people are all of a sudden holding Republicans responsible and they're worried they're going to lose the midterms, I guess we can have that conversation, what to do next. But maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe we see a repeat of what just happened where you had Republicans like, okay, look at these clowns over here. They're shutting down the government. They're stopping services that are owed to American citizens by their government because it is, in fact, American citizens that give the authority to the governing bodies to actually do any of this stuff in the first place and pay for it with their taxes. They're going to stop services for citizens in order to get something for illegal aliens, people that are not allowed to be in the country. And, you know, I, I have to take it to the next step. I'm trying to be open-minded about this, and I'm trying to be realistic, too. But I have to take it to the next step because are we really going to not get amnesty for the parents? And then, the, you know, it's, it's funny because the whole storyline here is like, oh, there were children, it's not their fault. It was the parents' fault. Well, so now the parents are likely, I think, to get included in a future amnesty right after. It's not going to take long. And then it'll be, well, yeah, the parents broke the law, but look at how smart they were. They got amnesty for themselves and their kids. It's a good deal. Smart move for them, right? I mean, illegal, but got them what they wanted. I don't see how you can expect that there would be the political will to stop future amnesties if you allow DACA amnesty. I really don't see it. And I try, you know, I, I understand there was a, there were some aspects of the Trump matrix that I was not picking up on right away. You know, I, I didn't get the full scope of it early on when there were 17 Republican candidates. So I'm, I'm open to maybe this is, and people say this sneeringly, but sometimes I think it's, you know, you got to look at what Trump's done. You're like, he is kind of playing 4D chess, actually. I'm not going to pretend he's doing it all the time, but He's pulled off some pretty incredible stuff, not the least of which is getting elected president despite all the stuff against him, including, and think about this, can we just add this into the pile, everyone? Not only would Trump have been elected president despite the media's un, unending fury, hatred, and scorn for him, but he would have been elected as this outsider with all the media turned against him, throwing everything they've got at him, you know, pulling, a, you know, a, a October surprise, everything they have. And a an attempt at a at a stealth coup, a silent rewriting of 
the election by the deep state. I mean, it's crazy when you think about this, right? It is crazy. So maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's some part of this that, or maybe it's just too early. I can't say that I have all the answers here. I just know that if they go forward with amnesty on DACA, it will not be, it will not be the number they tell you. And not because they're being dishonest necessarily, it's just because there will be considerations that factor into this that they can't tell right now. I mean, they're just, they're going to tell you what they think the number will be. It'll be higher than that. And then after it, I have to wonder why, why would anybody think that we'll say, okay, yeah, but the parents, the kids have now been made citizens. Right. The kids, by the way, the kids are an average age, I think, like 28 or something, 26, 28. The parents are going to be deported. No, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So it is you're going to get DACA and DAPA. And now you're at like four, four million ish. So you got call it seven million left. Maybe. Eh, they're they're going to push for more. And I don't think I don't think so. You know, if you think that America will be able to continue to be the place that it is with 11 million illegal aliens who are made permanent residents and or citizens. That's one thing, but I see this. I see a domino effect here. I'm just going to say it. I see a domino effect, and I want to know what you all think about this. Maybe Trump is going to pull a fast one on the Pelosi-Schumer crew, and he knows exactly what he's doing. That's absolutely possible, but when I'm hearing that there's going to be an amnesty for 2 million people and they're going to have a pathway to citizenship, I'm just like, well, that's that's an amnesty for two that'll turn into an amnesty for 10, guaranteed. And what are we exactly getting in response? $25 billion for the border? Hmm. That wall is going to take how long to go up? Are they, are they just putting prototypes out in the desert? Or are they actually going to have a wall that's in process of being built? All right, I had a feeling this would happen. Lines are getting lit up here like a Christmas tree. What do you think about this deal, everybody? Amnesty. Can Trump sign amnesty, and can you? And are you okay with it? Will you still support him? You think it's the right move? Is he being backed into a corner here that he should fight out of? 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Let's hear from the team. We'll be right back. Right now, I think there's an excellent opportunity for the president to lead on this, because here's the problem with immigration debate. And you know this, Dana, we've watched this dynamic for years, is Mm -hmm. that it tends to be driven by the extremes on either party. So the best thing the president can do here is go out there, lay out some straightforward, not over-the-top demands that he has in return for, at very least, making these dreamers legal, Mm -hmm. and then dare those sides to in any way disrupt it. That was our friend Kim Strassel from the Wall Street Journal over on Fox. And that's one, that's certainly one way to assess what's going on here. Trump is just basically trying to get it started. And he knows that if there's no talk about legalization for DACA, well, then maybe there's no discussion. But does there have to be a discussion? I, look, it's this is complicated stuff. Keep in mind, other, lots of Republicans have failed on this with all their staffs and the Hill and everything else. They have failed miserably on this issue in the past. 
What do you think about this? Uh, Tom, we got lines lit. Love it. Tom in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Tom. Good afternoon, Buck. You know, I was on the uh, Trump train before there even was a Trump train. I mean, when he was even just talking about running. And I went through all the roller coaster rides, and I was on a, been on the radio at, at that time, probably every other night, if not every night and afternoon, and 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 sometimes mornings, uh, trying to explain uh, what he what he said that uh, people were upset about on a, a particular day, and then the next day trying to re-explain it again. But uh, if this is his idea of negotiation on immigration then I am off the Trump train completely. Um, first of all, that is the vital issue, immigration. You can, you can say, you know, well, geez, he's doing great in the economy, great on trade, great on uh, uh, national defense. That's all true. But if you open the border door wide open and let the Trojan horse in like he's doing, then what good does it do? All we're doing is giving that away because at, we're very close to the tipping point now, and we will be very soon, that much sooner, at the tipping point to where there are more people who uh, find better interest in uh, having an open border with Central and South America than not. If yeah, what happens, when, what happens if Democrats get control of the government again? You've got, call it, 5 or 10 million more Democrat constituents who are on the on the rolls across the country. Uh, guess what, everybody? They could say, you know what? We're forget guest worker programs. You know, we're just going to open it up. I mean, you got to sort of stop and uh, you know, That's you, you got to touch it, first base first, but then you can just run around all the bases. Well, but here's the other part of it: if if he negotiates for a, a border of barrier, now keep in mind that's what that was part of thirty years ago. That southern border barrier was part of the amnesty 30 years ago. Then, you know, they could just drag it out to the next election, election after that. Okay, there's going to be an escrow fund. Okay, there's going to be an escrow fund, but the next administration could, you know, just say, well, we're going to get away with it. We're just going to do away with it. Now, here's what I would say, and here's, here's to me, is negotiation. That southern border fence barrier should have been there 30 years ago. It wasn't. Good faith, Democrats, show us that you mean what you say and you're going to do what you say. That comes first. We'll put a moratorium on everything else. Once that border fence, border barrier is built, and I say barrier because it's going to be fence, wall, surveillance, what have you. Once that's done, then we'll go and negotiate the rest of it. And, and as far as this whole idea of amnesty and, and DACA and so forth and dreamers, Buck, your kids are dreamers. Every American kid is a dreamer. They want to dream for a better uh, life than what they have presently, college education, what have you. Going beyond that is the idea that when, when you – Going to negotiations, you have to know when to compromise and when not to compromise. Peter Drucker, who was prominent in, in business management about 40 years ago, had a great line. He said, you need to know when to compromise and when not to compromise. Half a loaf of bread is still half a loaf of bread, but half a baby is a dead baby. And, and if we don't watch this, we're, I mean, already, I think, by, by just looking at the indications in terms of, uh, I'm, not, I'm in Ohio. Look, Tom, I think you make a very compelling case. I'm, I'm with you on all this stuff. I, I just think, I, I worry that, you know, that Trump is being led astray by some of his top advisors on this one. And I also think that people 
aren't really understanding the full implications of what a, quote, limited amnesty would be, including a lot of Trump supporters. I think a limited amnesty is a, is a misnomer. There's no such thing. Exactly. Now, now here's the other part of it. I, I think it may be time, if Trump wants to follow through on this, to bring in a relief pitcher. What I'm saying is, you know, if this is the way Trump is going to be, well, then let them indict him. Let them get impeached. I really think we might get a better deal from Pence. Huh. Wow. That's strong stuff. Tom, thank you for calling in. A very uh, thoughtful and articulate uh, contribution to the show. Thank you very much, sir. Shields high. Yeah, I, that's uh, – so Tom's not having it. <laughs> Short end is Tom is like, no no deal on DACA, full stop. I would say that, you know, what, what his point about how it used to be understood among conservatives that you got to – it's not give us border security and amnesty at the same time. It's border security first, and then we can talk about what happens here. Because then you'll be in greater control, and you'll know that you won't be dealing with at least any real large numbers of newly arrived illegals who want to be part of the new amnesty architecture, so to speak. Mike in uh, Wilson, North Carolina. Hey, Mike. Hey, Buck. Do you hear me? Yes, sir. (laughs) That's a hard call to follow. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry about last night uh, with the um, going off the rails, but let me get right to it. Um, you know, what makes me mad is, um, you know, I'm fine with the kids staying, but it, but the parents have to go. And uh, please, I have two things. One about Shield Pie, which is immaculate, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but um, I, I would be fine with the kids staying, but the parents did break the law, and I believe they have to go. They right. know the land. They know where they came from. And and me being Native American, you really don't want to hear what I have to say about immigration. <laughs> well, Mike, I appreciate you calling in, man. And thank you for listening and your kind words about Shields High. we got to run into a quick break here, though. Mike, thanks. Folks, if you're holding, uh, we'll try to get to you after this break. we got much more, including John Kerry and the Logan Act. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. What the heck is John Kerry doing? Someone want to explain this to me? You remember John Kerry? Uh, World's world's most boring member of the uh, Senate. I mean, and then Secretary of State, who's whose only real interest in public service has always seemed to be John Kerry. Uh, He is in, here's what we got. This is from Fox News. Former Secretary of State John Kerry reportedly tried to meddle in Mideast affairs, or Mideast peace talks, allegedly telling a close associate of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas not to yield to President Trump's demands. Israeli news outlet Mariv reported on the apparent meeting between Kerry and Hussein Aga in London, where the Democratic presidential nominee from 2004 and former Hillary Clinton Secretary of State, gosh, pardon me, Barack Obama's Secretary of State, floated a possible encore bid in 2020. Oh, Kerry thinks he's running. This guy is just too much. Okay, John Kerry, we don't we don't need you. It's all going to be fine. Uh, 
right? There's lots of, oh gosh, Gary, I got it. It's remarkable. This guy has been able to fund his political career by marrying very wealthy twice. I guess he's lucky. Or it's true love. Who knows? Um, But he is undermining the sitting president as a former secretary of state, which does still carry some clout, obviously, in terms of his Rolodex and who he can call. The Logan Act is not something that I'm going to trot out and pretend is some big deal because we all know it's a law that no one's ever been prosecuted under. In fact, there's a little aside reference in Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks, which I've watched a couple of Tom Hanks movies recently just to happen to be on. Uh, I had never watched Castaway in its entirety before. Very watchable, only because it's Tom Hanks. Though. I think otherwise, if you had the wrong actor, it would have been kind of boring. But he does a very good job, and also Charlie Wilson's War. Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks' movies are pretty pretty great. I'm gonna say, you know, a little positivity here in the hut. Pretty pretty good movies. But there's a there's a scene in Charlie Wilson's War where I believe he's talking to Hanks as Congressman Wilson is talking to Zia, uh, President Zia of Pakistan. And he says that he's borderline violating the Logan Act. So there's a little pop culture Logan Act reference for you, for those who like that kind of random trivia. It's not really a law anyone goes to prison for, even gets in trouble for. So how much can we really make of it? I think the answer is not very much at all. But just note that that was the excuse that real DOJ lawyers and prosecutors were using for why they had to go after General Flynn. And now you got Kerry, who's kind of running his own foreign policy. And even aside from any Logan Act stuff or any of that, what the heck is Kerry doing? You know, John Kerry, just stop, man. Just go windsurf. We've all had enough. Oh, gosh. These Democrats, I swear. There's, there is a, a particular, there must be a particular personality disorder that a lot of these politicians have where they really believe that even though they have run and lost, even though they have tried and failed, they have had power and been incompetent, that they still need to keep on, you know, that we, we need them back in the fight. It's like, no, no, you, you are not helping. We, we don't need your help. Thank you. Rick in Florida. What do you got for me, Rick? Well, sir, I'm a retired military guy. Thank you for your and, service. Uh, oh, you're welcome. But uh, if you want to really be a dreamer, then you got to come forward and sign up if he was to agree to something. And when you sign up, what you're signing up for is become a citizen, but you forego your right to vote for a period of eight years, and you relinquish all government assistance for a period of five years, including college tuition assistance. Is this a plan that you've heard of or read elsewhere, or is this just your own? This is just your own uh, yeah, idea. This is my. My own idea of thought that, you know, if you really want to be a citizen, uh, for some of us folks that, uh, you know, defended our country for uh, a period of 20 years or more, uh, well, uh, step on board and uh, relinquish a lot of your uh, rights for the first uh, little bit of time you're in here, and uh, then you can become a citizen. Okay. I mean, look, it's a, I think your proposal, Rick, is certainly worth thinking about. I, unfortunately, I'm not... You know, a senior senior member of Congress or anything, so I can't say that I can make this. Uh, I, I can put this in motion right away, but I know some people, so we we we'll see if we can get in contact. I mean, look, I think your idea about the relinquishing of of certain privileges and rights that might come along as part of a DACA amnesty is important, and I think it's going to be part of the negotiation. 
So I, I think I don't think you're off at all with that. I think that's going to be something under discussion in the days and weeks ahead. So uh, we'll see. Well, but re- I'm sorry, Rick. Go ahead. You'd really find out which ones really want to be citizens and which ones don't. Which ones want the free ride? Which ones want to become Americans? Mm-hmm. Rick, thank you very much for uh, for your call again. Appreciate it. And, and look, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I would note that earned citizenship is something that I am certainly. Uh, open to as an idea. Although I'd wonder if some of you listening who are current or former military would be like, yeah, but it shouldn't be about, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I've, Look, I've never served, so I, I wonder what those of you listening think about that. Would you want the military to be a, a particular pathway to citizenship for non-citizens? Do you, do you like that idea? Do you support that idea? I, I can see the merits of it, for sure. Uh, Ch- uh, Charlotte in Pittsburgh. What's up, Charlotte? Thank you for taking my call. I'm you, you're touching on immigration, and that's like really hot with me. I've been on the phone all day calling committees and my rep, uh, my senators and other people because I'm very upset about this DACA situation. Now I want to say that I'll give you some statistics. Forty five percent of them are unemployed. Twenty one percent flunk high school. Only twelve percent make it past high school with some other kind of education. And these people do not assimilate. They create their own communities and their own uh, uh, social circles. And I want to give you, plus, plus, after they have benefited from being here, you know, it costs eleven to $13,000 a year to get them through high school, from preschool to high school, and then they go on to college. And then I want to tell you about Tucker Carlson, this guy, um, David Compost. He came over here illegally with his parents at age 14. He ended up, has become a lawyer, and is Harvard educated. He's the assistant director, deputy assistant to the executive of uh, Santa Clara County, California. And he's advocating a sanctuary county. He says it's a constitutional county. He's like constrangulating our constitution, advocating for sanctuary status. And then on top of it, uh, Carlson, Tucker Carlson was uh, pressing him, uh, what, what's he going to do about this proposed, or maybe it's passed, I don't know, California legislation, where they're going to prosecute any employer if they inquire on the— Yeah, I know. Uh, I've, t- I've talked about that on the show, Charlotte. Yeah, this is the law we've talked about. Charlotte, I appreciate your fervor on the issue, and thank you thank you for calling it in. Um, George in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. Hey, George. Hi, Buck. How you doing? Good. Thank you for calling in. Hey, this is a this is a habit with Kerry. Uh, during the Vietnam War, he went in uniform, full whites, into uh, the the uh, Vietnam North Vietnamese Embassy, or whatever they whatever they called it there, and uh, offered them moral support at that time too. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, threw medals over the fence. I mean, Kerry's done all. I, I, the fact that the Democrat Party put him forward as their presidential candidate says a lot about the Democrats. It's a, it's a little bit of a weak bench, but there's there's a word for this. I think you know it's a little bit smaller country, but what's that word? Collusion. Yeah. Yeah, I think they call it that. I, uh, a fair point, George. Thank you for calling in from Pennsylvania. Hey, look, it's, if this was not if this was not John Kerry, I assure you, if it were a Republican doing this. Undermining Barack Obama as, as commander in chief, there'd be big outrage in the media about it. Speaking of media outrage, did you guys know there was a photo of uh, Barack Obama with Louis Farrakhan that was intentionally hidden from the public 
before he ran for president. You want to hear about that story? I'll tell it to you right after this break. Now, I don't like to spend much of our time here on the mistakes of the past unless they illuminate something worthwhile for us here in the present and and going forward. What I mean is I don't like to just bash all the previous Democrat politicians who were making mistakes here or there. Um, At some point, it does turn into whataboutism. But this isn't that. This is a, a pretty... (laughs) <laughs> Pretty astounding revelation of the double standards of the press. This is a a bit of a, well, it's not a shock at all, actually. I have to be careful with my language here. This is what we really expect, but it's just more of what we have always known. You know, this is just another data point to add into it. And it's why when I hear people say, well, you know, the press isn't that bad and Trump is so mean, he's a totalitarian, I say we, we can't. Trust the media at all. They are they are not to be trusted. You trust them, as you already know, you trust them at your peril. This is from Talking Points Memo, which is, you're like, Buck, what are you doing over there? Take a shower, Talking Points Memo. It's gross. I know, it's a left-wing site. Let me just read you a little bit about what's going on here, and then we'll dive into it together. A journalist announced last week, this is just from today, that he will publish a photograph of then-Illinois Senator Barack Obama and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan that he took in 2005 at a Congressional Black Caucus meeting but did not make public because he believed it would, quote, have made a difference to Obama's political future. The photographer, Askia Mohammed said that he gave the picture up at the time and basically swore secrecy. There's a, cl- there's a photo here. This is on a left-wing site, everybody. It, no one that I have seen is claiming that it is faked or not real or anything else. Of Senator Obama, before he's, you know, before he's president and everything else, Senator Obama standing with Louis Farrakhan, who is a vile anti-Semite. A, a truly... Despicable anti-Semite, uh, among other odious traits and and deep moral failings. Farrakhan is every bit as bad as a lot of these alt-right people that are constantly talked about by the left, and, and then some. Farrakhan is somebody who, if you spent time with him, if you were around him, it would indeed hurt your political career. And it should. Ah, but journalists, quote, journalists, end quote, take it upon themselves to be the arbiters of what is in your best interest. It is not the truth. The truth is not what they're trying to do. People don't show up the New York Times every day saying, we're just going to present the public with the truth. People show up to the New York Times, Washington Post, Talking Points Memo, CNN, MSNBC, and they're saying, what will our audience want to see that fits this, uh, this, fits this overall narrative of a whole bunch of different viewpoints and political decisions? And our, it's a narrative, right? It's a construct. It's a series of, of beliefs, ideas, and emotions all wrapped up together. 
but now we see it again. You know, Barack Obama was able to be president in this country twice to win two terms as president, despite the fact that he launched his political career in the living room of an admitted domestic terrorist. People say, oh, it's so racist. How could you say this? It's nothing to do. It has nothing to do with race. The fact that Bill Ayers was, was very palsy with Barack Obama does not have anything to do with race. It has to do with Bill Ayers is scum, and Barack Obama was willing to do whatever he had to do at the time to advance his political career, and that should, should have cast some legitimate questions or should have been the uh, cause of some legitimate questions when it comes to his judgment. Right? And that's putting it very mildly. I'm just saying. That is, in fact, what many of us all along have been feeling about the way the media talks about Democrat politicians versus Republican politicians. They are always finding the excuse to find the best possible way to present the left, and they will hammer and unfairly malign the right. And that's why, you know, people are saying now, oh, well, what about this uh, this allegation that Trump had an, aff- had an affair 10 years ago with an adult I just think it's interesting. Play, this is an aside, but this is, trust me on this one, I'm not, I'm not imagining it. Usually, places like CNN, because they view, you know, they, they want to be current and they want to be part, they would refer to somebody like Stormy Daniels, her stage name, as an adult film star. But in, because it involves Trump, it's porn star. And just it's it's subtle, but not really that subtle when you think about it. They're never saying, you know, adult film star, you know, stormy. You know, they're saying porn star. They want the same way they wanted to write the word S dash hole, but actually write it and say it on TV all the time. They couldn't just say Trump used profanity. They they are when we talk about them trying to sling mud at the president, it's really mud, right? I mean, it's it's I mean, not literally mud, but they're 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 being as gross about it as they can to give it a little added effect. So with Trump, it's, you know, they're going to say it's a porn star and the fact that he denies it, they don't care. And they're going to keep running with this story all the time. So that's what the that's how they handle Trump. And then you see with with Obama and granted, this was only one journalist. But how many they they, are they going to pretend that we're all idiots? How many other instances of a little creative writing and rewriting of history in favor of Obama did the media engage in. I mean, the, you could argue that Barack Obama, Barack Obama became president because of a media narrative, because of a media construct. In fact, that is why he became president. So they were drunk. The media was drunk with their power after the Obama administration. Oh, they had created, he's the greatest, most brilliant, most wonderful president ever, despite all the failures and the the problems that plagued the administration in terms of policy at home and abroad, despite all that. Oh, Obama's a genius. He's a genius. And Obama taking photos with Farrakhan. Look, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to pretend that just having a politician in a photo with somebody means that they're best friends or anything, but it's indicative. I'm not so much commenting on Obama in a photo with somebody because I don't know the full context of the photo. I'm commenting on a reporter had a photo that would have been in the public interest to see and that he took for that purpose and held back because, well, I don't want this to hurt Obama. That's a a benefit of the doubt 
that Trump never gets. In fact, it always goes in the opposite direction. And it's a reminder of what we were dealing with for eight years in the Obama administration. This is just one more thing here. The media's credibility was not shattered by Trump. The media shattered its own credibility in the Obama years, and you could argue even in the Clinton years, but in the Obama years, Trump just came along with the broom. Trump just came along to, to sweep it aside and say enough is enough. But they did this to themselves, really. And that's a part of this that I think we should not uh, we should not forget. All right, we're going to get into a discussion about what happens if you're somebody who quickly finds himself in the public eye, a young athlete, let's say, and you have some political beliefs and they're on Twitter. Well, I think we all know what would happen if you're a Democrat. Nothing. In fact, you'd probably get even more followers and everybody think you're great. But what if you're what if you're not a Democrat and you're a sports star and you write some stuff on Twitter? What happens to you then? We will uh, explore that question together coming up here in just a few minutes. Also, we got Michael Goodwin from the New York Post joining. So uh, stick around, team. Much more coming. Those of you who have been listening to this show for a while, those of you who are a part of my uh, beloved group of fellow patriots known as Team Buck, you know that I, I am livid with the hyper-politicization of everything. And I don't mean, oh, why are, why do people in political circles talk about politics? Oh, no, no. I mean that you can't, you can't even go to the movies or watch TV or go to a sporting event. I mean, that's TV and movies have been politicized for quite a while, but it feels like now with the NFL and the kneeling, there's just no escape from it. And it bothers me that that also means that for the people involved in those activities, there's no leeway given to them that they can have a, uh, a, an opinion that is contra the dominant narrative. Um, and you see this in tennis and what's happened with this American uh, tennis star. It's really a Cinderella story. Cinderella story. You guys know what I'm talking about with that? Yeah, of course. It's Bill Murray, right? Cinderella story. Uh, flowing robes, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Caddyshack. Just making sure the team in here is paying attention. Um, so he's a Cinderella story and he has done very well recently in the Australian open and they looked into his Twitter feed. His name is tennis Sangren, which is his name is tennis. Everyone. He's a, he's a tennis star now whose name is in fact T N N. YS, Tennis Sangren, and he was the last American standing in the Australian Open, and he got into a bit of a bind recently because the media went after him, and who, who wants to guess? So the media goes through his Twitter feed, and they go through his Twitter feed, and they find some things they find objectionable. Do, do we think he's a Hillary supporter? <gasps> no, what a shock. He is, in fact, a... Based on his tweets, I mean, look, I haven't had a conversation with the guy. You know what? We should let's invite. No, he'll never. That's that's a. <laughs> I'm not even going to let him come on the show because he'll just get heat. It's a bad idea. So I was going to say let's invite because I love tennis. There's some things about me that aren't really all that American. I live in Manhattan. I like lattes. I watch and play tennis, but just let it go. You know, uh, that's that's a discussion for another time. But he had some stuff on Twitter about different controversial topics from the election. And and I think he maybe, and now I'm, I'm not 
reading from this, so I may be getting this wrong, but I think he might have retweeted something that was a Cernovich story, or somehow they're saying he was involved in conversations about the all right. But here's the thing. There was nothing that was, oh, my gosh, what is th- that I saw. So don't don't hold me to this. Right. I haven't done a full scrub of this guy's entire online persona. But there there was some stuff about uh, here. Here's what The Washington Post wrote. So I'll, I'll use their wording. His past engagements on Twitter with far right figures and conspiracy theorists drew critical coverage that cast a shadow on his impressive run on the court. And, you know, there's nothing really that I see about him that I find, I don't know, I I didn't see anything about this that was anywhere near the kind of vitriol that he got from the media. Here's what they wrote. Of course, the story turns on tweets, contentious tweets, conspiracy theory retweets, and others with negative misinformation about Muslims, pro-Trump and anti-Hillary tweets, etc. He only has 7,300 followers, which for a celebrity is not... I mean, he's a much bigger celebrity now, um, but I'm not seeing anything. I'm not seeing anything that was, was there anything that was really bad in this? No, right? Like there's, because, you know, I, I'm I'm a realist. There are some things that I'd see, I'd go, whoa, okay, that's not good. But I saw nothing bad here. They called it flirting with the alt-right. Flirting, okay, flirt. So he wasn't, he was just engaging with content and trying to maybe learn a little more, share some opinions. The guy's a professional tennis player. He's on the court for friggin' 10 hours a day, six days a week or something. You know, cut him a little slack. But not only did they go after him for his alt-right connections, they took it even further than that, and I saw this online. But first, I want to let him speak for himself because he took the fight to the media publicly. Uh, what was it, yesterday? Here's, here's what he had to say. You seek to put people in these little boxes so that you can order the world in your already assumed preconceived ideas. You strip away any, any individuality for the sake of demonizing by way of the collective. With a handful of follows and some likes on Twitter, my fate has been sealed in your minds. To write an edgy story, to create sensationalist coverage, there are a few lengths you wouldn't go to to mark me as the man you desperately want me to be. You would rather perpetuate propaganda machines instead of researching information from a host of angles and perspectives while being willing to learn, change, and grow. You dehumanize with pen and paper and turn neighbor against neighbor. In so doing, you may actually find you're hastening the hell you wish to avoid, the hell we all wish to avoid. I like it, you know? Stand up for yourself, and he did. Good. But this is just another reason why I, I, don't, I don't like the media, I don't trust the media, and my role in the media is to fight with the rest of the media, really. It's one of that. There's people say, oh, you're part of the media. Yeah, I'm here to... I'm like Wyatt Earp. I'm here to help clean up the mess. And it doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm, you know, with, with the, what are they, the Clantons? Is that what they were called, right? The Clantons, weren't they the bad guys from Tombstone's a great movie, by the way. So this guy, though, and this is where it got even, even more unfair. I saw something where he had responded to a, a Serena Williams article. Um, a, or not, sorry, an article about Serena Williams. And he wrote something like, here, I want to make sure I get this right, because otherwise people are going to yell at me and say, you got it wrong. Uh, so he said, what did he, what did he do that got Serena Williams mad? I don't even, I, it was something like he wrote, it was bad because she, there was a story about how she had cursed. I don't I mean, what happened? He called it disgusting that she shot back in a tweet, and apparently that sent people up in arms. Wait, so that was it? I thought, he, he called it disgusting that she... She responded to him in a tweet. I mean, this is, 
<sighs> but then I saw people. Here's the point. He he didn't do anything that I could see as as a problem in any way, and people started saying he's racist because Serena Williams is the uh, the best tennis player, female tennis player that's ever lived. So in terms of titles and and wins and dominance, but. He, he's he's allowed to disagree with Serena Williams or, or dislike her conduct on the court or something and not be called a racist for it. I would note that he also had a tweet where he was talking about how Sloan Williams, who won the U.S. Open last year, who's an incredible player and gorgeous on top of that, and you know, was a, a huge superstar, uh, you know, he was cheering her on. So, I mean, she's African-American. It just seemed like they're jumping to conclusions and trying to – and Serena Williams is, oh, yeah, she's – you know, getting all high and mighty on him about everything now, and she, you know she's feeding the social justice warrior narrative on this. What was the what was the objection that he had to Serena? Make sure you track that down. Was it? It was really just that. It says that she he responded to an article. This apparently was that's what that's what I thought. Praising yeah. her, and he called the article itself disgusting. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, is, isn't he allowed to? I don't know. I mean, I think he's allowed to. I mean, I'm old enough to remember. See, this is the thing. I actually know a little bit about tennis when it comes to sports. So there's that. I remember when Serena Williams threatened a small Asian-American woman on the court physically in front of millions and millions of people watching. And the tennis uh, USTA was, you know, yeah, it was a little bit of a problem, but whatever. She's a superstar. She cursed and threatened to, uh, like, throw a ball down the throat of a woman who was, you know, there trying to make, like, a few hundred bucks to work at the U.S. Open. So, you know... Serena Williams is not perfect, everybody, and nobody is, but let's not take this into some weird place where any criticism of Serena Williams somehow makes somebody racist, especially from a guy who is, is all, you know, one minute he's criticizing Serena Williams, the next minute he's saying that Sloan Stevens is great. So it's like, well, what's the, I'm, I'm missing, I'm missing the analysis from the other side here. Oh, that's right. It's just about slandering this guy and, and trying to make him uh, persona non grata among tennis fans. You know, tennis, all these sports leagues now, is, there's a lot, of, a lot of social justice currents that are running through them. A lot of folks are trying to use athletes as platforms for political messages, including the athletes. But, I mean, just in general, ESPN is MSNBC with sports. It's true. But just this guy, Tennis Sandgren, you know, is an American Cinderella story. I'm going to not do the Bill Murray thing with that now. Those of you who haven't seen Caddyshack, you have homework. Go watch Caddyshack. But... Tennis Sangren is a guy who gets his first moment really in the sun, breaks all the way through, I think, to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Is that right? Or something like that, right? It was Or the round of 16. Yeah, whatever. He got really far at, I mean, sorry, at the Australian Open, not the U.S. Open. But he got really far. And they start going through his tweets, and they don't like his tweets. And so now all of a sudden he's a bad guy. And he needs, Serena Williams is saying, here, she tweeted at, at she tweeted out, maturity is being able to apologize and admit when you're wrong because you know that your mistakes don't define you. And she wrote to Tennis Sangren, I don't need or want one, but there is an entire group of people that deserves an apology. I can't look at my daughter and tell her I sat back and was quiet. No, she will know how to stand up for herself and others through my example. What, what is, am I, did I miss something? I mean, it's possible that I missed something, but I'm, so he called her an article about her disgusting and now that's like a big political issue and Serena Williams is demanding an apology? I don't, I mean, if that's, uh, he talked about the hell that we all wish to avoid. The hell that we all wish to avoid is that none of us get to have opinions, thoughts, humor uh, without constant fear. And that's what we're heading toward right now. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I, 
we I am I was a Trump supporter. Okay, I voted for Trump. I supported Trump throughout the general election wholeheartedly and without reservation. And I got to tell you, I I like Trump more with each passing month. And I already liked him. I mean, I'm getting to a point now where I said originally that I'm I was the I was like in I'm in the bunker with him. The media has forced me into the Trump bunker and I'm with him there fighting against the other side. Forget about being in the bunker with Trump and the rest of the Trumpers. Now I want to be the guy who goes over the top, blows the whistle and is like you know, running across the field to take the other guy's bunker. I'm just sick of it. It's crazy what's going on. So I'm going to watch a little Australian Open tonight, actually. I taped some of it last night. So. Tennis is a great sport. It's a great sport. I shouldn't say. It, it originated in France, for those of you who are curious, it, uh, and was originally played with a hand instead of a racket and on clay courts were the first courts, and then it moved to England. There's a lot of back and forth between the French and the English, but that's history lesson for another time. Um, all right. That's, we're going to get into uh, some other stuff coming up here. Oh, that's right. The crazy California law. I almost forgot, but I didn't. What is the let me, let's play a little game before we go into the break here. What is the craziest dumbest law that you can think of? Period. You know, some of you may know that there are I think blue laws still on the books that aren't enforced in New England where you can't kiss your wife on the cheek on Sunday or something or there, or you can't kiss her on the mouth or I don't know, you can only kiss her on the cheek. There's some weird laws that people don't enforce. Although when it comes to liquor sales in some states, there are very bizarre laws that are in place. But think about the weirdest law you can imagine. And then think about what do you what would you guess the level of weirdness is that could happen with the state of California and and the way that it writes laws? What would be the most bizarre law you could think of for California? And I'm going to tell you this right now. It doesn't come anywhere near to what I will discuss with you on the other side of this break. There's a law being considered right now in California that's so crazy even California's like, whoa, dude, like slow down. It's like crazy, like whoa. Can I take the 101 to the 305? All right, we'll be right back. Let's call it the straw law, shall we? California. Uh, this was making the rounds today. It's one of those things where I, I thought, oh, this has got to be this has got to be fake news. Right, this must be fake news. But turns out it's not. Reason.com, among many others, with the story. Uh, Ian Calderon wants restaurateurs to think long and hard before giving you a straw. Calderon, the Democrat majority leader in California's lower house, has introduced a bill to stop sit-down restaurants from offering customers straws with their beverages unless they specifically request one. Under Calderon's law, a waiter who serves a drink with an unrequested straw, wait for it, wait for it, would face up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $1,000. We need to create awareness, quote Calderon, uh, around the issue of one-time use plastic straws and its detriment, detrimental effects on our landfills, waterways, and oceans, he explained in a, pl- a press release. This isn't just Calderon's crusade. The California cities of San Luis Obispo and Davis both passed straws on request, straws on request laws, the straw law. Last year, and Manhattan Beach maintains a prohibition on all disposable plastics. And up in Seattle, food service businesses won't be allowed to offer plastic straws or utensils as of July. You know, I I will tell you, I was in Northern California visiting the 
Hoover Institution, some of you will recall this, about six months back maybe, and I thought they were kidding when I went into a store and bought, you know, I, I wanted to get a whole bunch of things to keep in, in the fridge where I was staying, and, and they handed me this little rinky-dink paper bag, and I said, well, can I have a plastic bag? And they said, we're not allowed to give you a plastic bag. And I thought they were kidding. But no, they're not kidding. They're, they're literally not allowed to give you a plastic bag. And I'm like, well, can you do better than this paper bag that doesn't even have any handles on it? Can you double bag it? Oh, no, one bag, one bag per customer. I'm like, no double bag? Come on. And then there was the different versions of recycling and compost and landfill only versus metal recyclables versus compostable versus reusable versus it's like an IQ test. I just want to throw out my garbage and move along with my day. But in California, it's a big thing. And now they're going to have guys walking around, you know, screenplay in one pocket, bunch of uh, glasses of, of wine in the other as they're walking around as waiters. And they're going to be like, yeah, you can't give you a straw, dude, because a straw is going to be like a $1,000 fine, man. And you're going to say to yourself, who would think that it's fair to find someone $1,000 for giving a straw? Look, I, I think that this is most likely, maybe I even have to withdraw this. I was going to say that this must just be an awareness-raising campaign, meaning that this is grandstanding without any intent to actually pass this law. I'm not sure, though. California is this crazy now. And I would note that, you know, California has so many built-in advantages as a state. It's, you know, it, it hurts me to say this, but it's absolutely gorgeous along the coast, as you all know. It's got a tremendous amount of natural resources. It is a home to Hollywood and also Silicon Valley. It has all this stuff going for it, and yet the state's governance, the politicians running that state are just slowly destroying it and they're chasing away people that would be great california residents the taxes are too high the services are crap they are completely uh completely overwhelmed with political support for illegals in in every possible capacity we've been talking about that a lot on this show but at what point is it too crazy even for them you know at what point i think don't you have to ask for a glass of water too they won't give you water right in california you have to ask for water i think I'm pretty sure that's the that's a rule too. Am I no crazy mate? We'll check on that one. I think that you have to ask for a glass of water there from when I was there last time. Look, they've got great food. There's a lot of stuff I like about California. So I'm not I'm not putting the state down. I'm putting the governance of the state down. It's a it's a great place. But the rules they have are just it's just borderline insanity and that they would think that anybody could get a straw fine or uh, $1,000, or six months in jail. Could you imagine that? Hey, hey, what are you in for? Oh, man, you know, I just, I just, I, I gave this this nice old lady who was trying to, trying to drink some, trying to drink a milkshake, I, I gave her a straw. Damn, you know not to do that, you know? Like, just, you know, two gruff guys sitting around talking about what they're in for. You know, what are you in for, you know? Straw. I gave her a straw. You know, you're like, well, there you go. Uh, California. What a, what a crazy place. What a crazy place. Um, so we'll see what happens with this. I don't think it's going to go very far. I don't think the straw on request law will get that much. Uh, we'll get that much in this. But who knows? Who knows? It's definitely possible. 
Oh, wait, there are anti-straw ads? Oh, we got to get some of these. The guy from Entourage, Adrian Grunier, and Neil deGrasse Tyson are in the anti-straw ads. Oh, we got to check those out. All right, we got our buddy coming up here in a minute, Michael Goodwin, so you'll want to stay for that. He's going to drop some knowledge bombs about all things FBI and DOJ, so stay right there. All right, so what do we make of the latest evidence when it comes to the possibility of a conspiracy within the FBI or the DOJ or both against the Trump campaign and the Trump administration? And what should Congress's next steps be? We've got Michael Goodwin with us now. He's a Fox News contributor and a New York Post columnist. Michael, great to have you back. Thank you, Buck. My pleasure. Okay, so you were a piece. Evidence suggests massive scandal is brewing at the FBI. In light of the latest information today, what do you make of the likelihood of of us actually finding out and, and proving this brewing scandal? Well, I think we're getting closer. I think we're through fits and starts. I think Congress is keeping the heat on. I think Judicial Watch with its lawsuits is another. And I think it's important that the public understand what Congress and Judicial Watch are up to, which is why I've written about it uh, numerous times, because I do believe that the mere possibility that top agents of the FBI, and I include James Comey, I think all roads lead to his office, The mere fact that they were taking it easy on Hillary Clinton intentionally, and there's lots of evidence to suggest that, some of which we've known before, and at the same time uh, talking about an insurance policy uh, against Donald Trump in case he won, which sounds very much like the, the dossier, the whole investigation into Russia, the relationship of the FBI and Christopher Steele, the fact that these text messages went missing and now apparently they or most of them have been found. I mean, this sounds like Keystone Cops. This does not sound like the great FBI. And I think there's a big difference. I think that what we're talking about here uh, are individuals at the top of the agency who decided they were above the law and that somehow they could do whatever they wanted. They could rig the investigation to let Hillary Clinton off. They could uh, find things just to keep the Trump thing going. They could leak a lot of this to the anti-Trump media. I mean, it really doesn't get much worse than this when you think of this is the premier law enforcement agency, and now this stonewalling of Congress. I mean, individual citizens couldn't do any of this. Individual citizens couldn't rebuff the FBI, uh, but the FBI thinks it's somehow it's different, as though its agents are exempt from accountability. Well, they're not. I mean, I think that's the clear lesson here, and, and I'm really grateful that members of Congress are being so tough about this. I mean, this is this is Congress doing its job. I wish we saw more of this, but I'm very happy they're doing it this time. I have to say, I find it distressing that as somebody who used to work for the executive branch and was working with very high-level classified information on a regular basis, I'm getting the sense from some folks in the FBI and the DOJ that they think that there is a category of information that neither the top of the executive branch, meaning the president the White House, or Congress has control over. And that's actually not true. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work that way. The FBI, the DOJ, doesn't get to say, well, neither Congress nor the president is in a position to go through the process to redact and then release this information. They don't actually own the information. And I get the sense from the Michael, they think they do. 
Well, and, and I think that is consistent, Buck, with uh, the James Comey, J. Edgar Hoover view of the FBI, which is that we are not accountable to anybody. Although we work in the executive branch, we are independent. I mean, you saw Pre Parara, the former head of the Southern District Prosecution in New York, when, when he was fired, railing about there should be an independent uh, um, prosecutors, independent investigators. They're not a fourth branch of government. They, they are accountable to all of the other branches, in, in fact. But they're acting as though somehow they have equal status and they can decide, as you say, what information to turn over. But there's, that's, not constant, that's not anywhere in the Constitution. These are individual people. They, they are not, no one elected them. They, they were appointed to serve. They can be unappointed, as we saw with Comey. Uh, but the, there is this J. Edgar Hoover mentality still at the FBI, which is that, uh, you know, we, we'll keep notes and we'll essentially blackmail people into silence because we have the power to investigate, and the power to investigate in Washington is a death sentence for a politician. And yet they go on, and so I, I think this is a real seminal moment in our modern history uh, that is very much about taking on the establishment, that the, the elitist, the establishment, Washington, the heads of the parties, you know, that somehow they are not accountable to the voters anymore. But I think we are seeing in this case a real pushback. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about your piece on Abbas. T uh, title, Abbas proves to be nothing more than a two-faced anti-Semi. What's going on here? Yeah, I was just reading uh, Nikki Haley's speech today, and uh, I'm happy to see that she, uh, you know, we're, we're very much in agreement. Look, I, I think Abbas has crossed over the Rubicon here. I mean, his refusal to meet with uh, Vice President Pence, his snubbing, I mean, his, his conspiracy theories about world history. I mean, these are the, these are the views of anti-Semites. Uh, there's always been some suspicion of Abbas, but he had a very moderate uh, manner, very different from Yasser Arafat. But, you know, the incitement of violence against Jews has gone on under Abbas. It's not a democracy. He's in, what, the 14th year of a four-year term. Um, I mean, he's done nothing. He's, he's made no breakthroughs. He, he always he can never get to yes with the Israeli negotiators. And now he's refused to negotiate says to the United States, we're not going to do it. We don't trust you. Um, so I think he's finished. The question is, how does it end? Um, and is there somebody who can be, as Nikki Haley said, the Palestinian Anwar Sadat, who very bravely made peace with Israel when it wasn't popular and paid for his life with it? But there, the, the peace between Israel and Egypt has held. Uh, so I think the Israelis have shown they're ready to make peace. But as they always say, Buck, they need a partner. What the heck and is John Kerry doing, according to news reports today, telling Abbas, don't worry about Trump? What's that? 
Yeah, and apparently he also offered to help the Palestinians uh, ignore the American uh, negotiators. Uh, I don't know. I mean, wh- where was all this all this enthusiasm for the Logan Act when uh, Michael Flynn was— That was going to be my next question. If the yeah. former Secretary of State openly undermining the president is not a violation of the Logan Act, nothing is. Now, I think the Logan Act is—, is unconstitutional and there's a reason it hasn't been used but we got to at least have a fair standard here right michael it can't be oh flynn's violating the logan act but Kerry gets a pass well look john Kerry was an utter failure as secretary of state he's been an utter failure at everything i mean he was one of the worst presidential candidates uh so I, i don't take him seriously but it is another sign of how far these crazy Democrats on the left are willing to go. I mean, if that is not subverting American foreign policy and trying to conduct it on your own, I don't know what would be. Before we let you go, Michael, are your sources in D.C. or elsewhere telling you that the memo at the at the heart of the whole release, the memo movement right now about FISA abuse that Nunes may be releasing, are they telling you that it's as advertised so far, or people withholding judgment that you're speaking to? Meaning, is, is it a bombshell, or is it we don't know? Well, I, I, you know, I personally don't know. Uh, and, and I have some reservations, Buck. I mean, I, I, I was somewhat surprised that the DOJ demanded to see it, uh, and, and the FBI. That struck me as reasonable. Uh, now, I know Congress is really angry that, that the DOJ and the FBI have been stonewalling, but I, I think Congress loses nothing by showing it to them. They don't give up their rights to release it. Um, you know, they, they, they could, I guess, individuals could lose their security clearance uh, for doing this, but they say there is nothing, no classified material in there. There seems to be a big debate on that. I, have, I see no problem with giving it to them, and even if it means changing it slightly, I think the momentum to get this information out is now unstoppable, and I don't see any harm in delaying it for a day or two or three if that gives the DOJ and the FBI more comfort. But the clear, the clear momentum is they must be held accountable, and they are not exempt from the laws of this country. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist. Check out his latest at NewYorkPost.com and look for him on Fox News. Michael, always great to have you. Take care. Talk to you soon. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Tim, we're going to roll into a quick break here. When I come back, we're going to have some roll call. Roll call time. You know what that means. Stay right there. Well, welcome back, team. Great to have you as always. It's the end of the show. Makes me sad. I feel like I didn't I feel like we didn't get enough time to hang out. You know, this is where I wish I could I could order a cappuccino just to extend our time together. You know, may, maybe a maybe a macchiato. I don't know. Maybe a a soy latte. Who who knows? Just whatever can get you to, to hang out a little longer. But we actually, unfortunately, do have to close the show for today. But tomorrow we'll be back with Freestyle Friday. This week seems to have flown by. I don't know what's going on. Maybe when all you do is work and you don't get enough sleep, things move quickly. That's that's going to be my story, and I'm going to stick to that for now. Uh, let's see what we get here. Seth. This is. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Roll call. What am I doing? There we go. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. <laughs> yeah, see, because the announcer makes it, like, official, you know? So we need the announcer to make it official. Uh, Seth writes in the following. Hey, Buck, I'm enjoying the new history podcast. It's helping me get interested in history for the first time, and I have a friendly suggestion. Since I'm a history newbie, it would help me if there were a place, perhaps in the show notes, to see some of the hard-to-spell places that are referenced during the show. I like to sit at my computer and look them up while listening because it helps me to visualize the story and follow along. 
but sometimes I can't, fi- I can't find the more obscure-sounding places and people. Anyway, it's coming along great. Shields high. Uh, well, Seth, it's a great suggestion. I've thought about it before. I, back in my Blaze days, was known as the guy who was obsessed with maps. And I can tell you in my time in government, that was really the only— I never had photos of family or anything like that on my desk. I wasn't one of those guys, which is fine. I'm just That just wasn't my thing, probably because I wasn't married and didn't have kids and— I didn't think I needed a picture of mom and dad staring down at me. I could always just call them if I wanted to. But the uh, maps were the one thing. That was the defining visual characteristic of my workspace because I like to visualize things in that way. It's just maps are very, even when I'm not thinking about a geographic specific issue or an issue of geography, I very much enjoy or or appreciate um, and enjoy a good map. So... The answer to your question is I'd have to think about how we do that. I am thinking, because we're, we're trying to evolve with all these things we're trying to hear on the show, I am thinking that I may move some of what we're doing with uh, the Shields High podcast to BuckSexton.com. Because th- that way, right now it's on iTunes only, and if I did it on BuckSexton.com, you just go there, download it, and I could also put up reference material, articles. It would almost be like a... I, I dare I say uh, a history, you know, college history course or something like that, although it would not be mandatory reading or anything. Right. There'll be no pop quizzes, but I could put more source material and have a little bit of a more full experience. So I'm, I'm thinking about that as a possibility. And if we moved in that direction and if folks, those of you who are listening to the show are interested in that, uh, then I'd be happy. Oh, my gosh, I'd have a great time cutting up all kinds of maps and using visual aids and I could put all the photos up and because I do think it really helps you know when you see what it would have looked like on the walls of Constantinople for example to have been a defender on those walls looking 40 feet down and a field covered in 80 to 100,000 Turkish warriors of all kinds trying to storm those walls and it it, it just makes for a pretty impressive well, obviously, impressive visual, but even just to conjure it in your mind is very, uh, very powerful imagery. Anyway, but a great idea, Seth, and I'm so glad you like the History Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, Graham, with the next one. Oh, another one about Shields High. I swear I'm not just picking notes on the History Podcast. I'm doing these in order. So this is the next one that comes up. About Shields High, firstly, thank you. About time somebody pods history with personality. Can we get this every day? One suggestion after episode one, you could illustrate the world's political tenor more vividly and the major characters could feel more palpable. Thank you for taking this project on. You're my favorite on-air personality, hands down. Well, Graham, that is very kind of you. And, oh, he also wrote, if, it, if you charge a subscription, we would pay. Appreciate all the great insights, show guests, and amazing impersonations. Uh, would love to meet you in person sometime and discuss how we could build a better republic. Graham, you are very kind. It would be great to meet you too sometime, my friend. Hopefully we'll be doing some... Team Buck travel events around the country coming up here. Uh, and as for making the characters more alive, I look, I struggle with this. I I have to give all due, uh, due props to Dan Carlin, who does incredible long-form history storytelling on a few subjects. But he does like one every, I think he releases one every six months. But it's dense. It's a lot. He's a very good storyteller. But he goes for three hours. I have people telling me if you go more than 30 minutes per ep- per episode, it just feels like it's too much. So I'm trying to gauge it 
based on the reaction that I'm getting from all of you. And right now it seems like, and let me know if this is wrong, and I really mean that. I'm going to read the feedback. It seems like 30 to 45 minutes an episode is the sweet spot for most of you. That's like history. We get to it, give you the background, the story. And, you know, if you're listening while you're cooking dinner or, or you're cleaning up or, you know, tuning up the car in the garage or whatever, it's you can get through a, a, a full episode of it and not feel like, oh, gosh, I've got another but, you know, there's the other side of it is maybe if I'm going to do it once a week, uh, I could do, I don't know, I, I got a lot of ideas with this. But the other thing is I need more of you to to tell others about this and, and spread the word and get the downloads going. Because right now, it was only because I wanted to do this so badly that uh, Premier said, okay, you know, passion project, go for it, Buck. This was not anyone's idea to put on me but my own. So I need to, I need to show numbers on this. And, that's the, and that just means downloads, folks. And that means that there'll be more of them. Uh, let me see if I uh, now I'm going to skip. I'm not going to go in order because I don't want you to think that I am only picking out. Oh, I love the history show. And some of you have told me I've re- responded. Some of you have some thoughts about the history show that, you know, you, you miss this or you need to add that in. And I'm going to take all that into account, too. Brian, with the next note here on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. What was the best burger joint in NYC again? You mentioned it on air a couple weeks back. Thanks, man. Well, Brian, the best burger joint. For my money in New York City is J.G. Mellon's on the Upper East Side. There's also a J.G. Mellon's downtown. The purists tend to say that it's just not the same and it's not as good. It's close, but if you want the real experience, go to J.G. Mellon's on the Upper East Side. And if you want to see the place without going there, it actually makes a cameo in the movie Metropolitan, which came out a long time ago, which is a Witz Stillman movie, and J.G. Mellon's was is a watering hole for Upper East Siders in New York, and so that's where, that's why that pops up in that movie. And some of you are like, what's Metropolitan? What? And don't worry about it. It's not, uh, it was not a blockbuster, but you can check it out if you like. Um, Jamie writes in, I wonder if Ice knows that there are a bunch of illegal immigrants sitting outside of Chuck Schumer's house. <laughs> well, I think they probably know, Jamie. Jamie also writes, give Miss Molly a ring. We're working on it, Jamie. Don't give anything away. Uh, all right, team. We're gonna roll into <laughs> we're gonna roll into the close of the show, not a break. Honor, privilege, and pleasure as always to have you here. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in the hut. Please, uh, if you're looking for something to you know talk to the folks about in the office or just shoot the breeze while you're in the elevator, be like, hey, check out the Buck Sexton show. Download it. It's free on iTunes and the iHeart app. And he does some cool things and says some interesting stuff. I hope check it out. See you tomorrow. Shield tie.